This is hell. Lindsay, I love when producers play music that I like and do not recognize. What was the music you were just playing? That was Janelle Monae. Oh, no kidding. I love love her so much. Yeah, that's that's from one of her first albums. Uh, I think it is her first full, like, length album the arc android yeah that was really great that was fantastic i really loved yeah, it she's she's always very good i saw her on tv by accident one time and i was like well this is okay and then she did a second song and i was like that's really fantastic i really dig her work your eyewitness to grief this is hell and throughout the rest of 2022 and into the first week of 2023 we are and will be playing the best of 2022 as chosen by our listeners with some help from our staff we started this year's edition of the best of 2022 earlier this week by playing our interview with dr heather berg who wrote the boston review article freedom not benefits sex workers are labor's vanguard the left ignores them at its peril Today, we're continuing the best of This Is Hell 2022 edition in no particular order with a conversation we also had back in August. Actually, I think this was on the very next show we did in August, four days later, when we spoke with writer, sociologist, and interdisciplinary scholar Laura Malden about her Baffler magazine article, Care Tactics, Hacking an Ableist World. And being somebody who is disabled myself, I can tell you that all these people talking about life hacks, that's what disabled people go through every day. I have uh, hacks, including just going downstairs. There's a certain way that you are taught to go downstairs if you are blind uh, that I have to use on a regular basis because of a limited depth perception. If it's sunlight, I can't see very well. So, yeah, the life of a disabled person is doing those really cool life hacks all the time and they're not all that cool both the interview with dr heather berg and the talk we will be playing shortly with laura malden took place right after i got back from my annual family summer vacation at cottage on lake and i'm starting to think that my yearly two-week break from the show leads to good shows immediately upon returning from summer break who knew that recovering and recuperating for two weeks actually leads to good radio. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, next week you will be cat-sitting for myself and my non-spouse. So you came over this past weekend to get cat-sitting instructions, and you saw our place for the very first time. Aside from our place being completely decked out for the holidays and the fact that our kitchen and bathroom are in desperate need of a gut rehab, which is something I went through earlier this year. Any thoughts about our place that you'd like to share with the listening audience? It was super clean. (laughs) (laughs) I I heard you talking about it with Sebastian yesterday. Yeah, yeah. no no shame needed. I'm in the constant state of trying to make my apartment livable. (laughs) Especially when somebody's going to come over. Yeah, that's what I mean. I generally don't have people over because uh, it's very hard to get it together fast <laughs> enough. <laughs> it's very difficult. It's a pain in the ass. We actually, uh, I vacuumed the front. We live in a three flat on the third floor, and I actually vacuumed the inf- entire front stairwell. And after I was done, my girlfriend says to me, Oh, Lindsay's coming up the back stairs. And I'm like, Oh, I didn't need to vacuum that. And then you came up the front stairs, and all of a sudden, everything was worthwhile. <laughs> Yes, I, I, that good first impressions are everything. Right? <laughs> it so, was uh, really disturbing before you got over. There was something <laughs> sticky in the foyer that we couldn't determine what it was. It, uh, it showed up last week, 
And our uh, guesses were soda, beer, or urine, and we couldn't decide which it was. So, well, now it's gone. Yeah, now so, it's gone. Uh, Anything else new by you? Um, not so much. You know, I'm just at least if if my apartment gets messy, I can just hang out at your guys's <laughs> next to the Christmas tree. See, exactly, exactly. So, you like our Christmas tree? Yeah, of course. It's a living. It's. I think it's still alive. I think they're still alive for a while after you cut them. Yeah, the uh, big thing that we do every year is right when we get the tree, we put sugar in the first amount of water that you give the tree, and then if we have like a day or two before we're putting anything on the tree, uh, I'll spray it with water. And our trees... Uh, are fed so well that by the time we're taking them down, they already have uh, pine cones on the ends of branches. <laughs> so it's actually still producing. Uh, so we have a, a quick announcement about this week's Patreon podcast streaming live Thursday at 10 a.m. Central Time and podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. What we were going to do on Patreon this week was reveal everything we learned this year on This Is Hell. That is, we were going to go through each and every show we did in 2022 and give a summary of everything we took in from our guests this year. However, as we learned so much in the past month, the past 12 months, we are going to have to break that up into two Patreon podcasts. One this Thursday, December 22nd, and then again the following Thursday, December 29th. I thought for sure that we would be able to fit what we learned in 2022 in one Patreon podcast, but apparently we learned a lot more this year than I thought, and that's despite me missing a lot of shows this year to do my many surgeries and lengthy recuperation. Also on Patreon, a past guest on This Is Hell is getting a lot of attention from the mainstream media as it, and is currently being targeted by Fox News. As the Washington Post reported this past weekend, nearly two years into President Biden's term, he and Senate Democrats have yet to look to lock down a majority of the Federal Communications Commission and amid a, a protracted fight over his pick for the agency, Gigi Sohn. Progressive groups and consumer advocates have lamented the delay as hamstringing efforts to restore open Internet protections and expand broadband access. Sohn's nomination has faced steadfast opposition from Senate Republicans who have pointed to her past advocacy work and public remarks on topics including Fox News and casting the former Democratic FCC staffer as a partisan and radical activist. That push to tank Sohn's nomination was, has been bolstered by conservative groups taking out hundreds of thousands of dollars in attack ads. The moves highlight how the battle over the FCC nomination, which typically draws little fanfare, uh, grew into a significant campaign flashpoint, which means right now, at this very moment, Producer Alexander Jerry is knee-deep in our archives trying to locate our conversation with Gigi Sohn. Yes, Gigi Sohn was a guest here on This Is Hell. And we figured if we play it on Patreon, maybe we'll get some of those Fox News people who will subscribe just for one week to hear this interview with this radical leftist Gigi Sohn. And uh, maybe we'll get it on Fox News, too. So if Alex is able to find it under all the dust and debris, we will be sharing our interview with Gigi from a very, very long time ago, long before she held a position at the FCC during the Obama administration. If Alex is able to find that interview, and I think he will, he will be, or we will be sharing it on Patreon this week. Again, that's on Thursday at patreon.com slash thisishell. But more important than any and all of that, Lindsay, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is the proverbial worst gift you can get during the holiday season is a lump of coal. But who knows where to buy a lump of coal anymore? <laughs> 
In these modern times, what is the worst gift you can possibly receive during the holidays? I'm wondering how many people are going to say it's still a lump of coal. I ha- I have one. What's uh, that? It's a uh, I found uh, some charcoal lighter fluid underneath my um, sink the other day. I have no idea where it got. <laughs> I think I pulled it out of a trash can because I was like, this isn't supposed to. Go. I don't know. I have it, and I don't have any coal to light, so I'm gonna gotta give that to somebody <laughs> who has a lump of coal right that makes sense i mean sense. i guess but one of the whoever f- gets my lighter fluid we got a horrible horrible gift one year from uh, somebody we love very much they gave us a, you know a fragranced candle like a yankee candle or one whatever horrible fragrant yeah. anything is a very polarizing gift very polarizing gift so uh, we got one uh, laura's sister got one we put them in our cars and we're driving back home uh driving back to my sister-in-law's ostensibly my sister-in-law's home and we're following her and my girlfriend's like i can't we can't keep driving with this stench in the car we i can't i can't do it we're gonna have to pull over it's killing you we gotta (laughs) we gotta get this out of the car and so all of a sudden we see her sister is just taking some off-ramp a random off-ramp and we're like what is she doing and she pulls up, and there's a line of mailboxes. You know, it's in a rural area, so there's a whole bunch of mailboxes right in a row. And she pulls over, opens up the mailbox, and we see her putting her candle in the mailbox. <laughs> and we pulled up right behind her, went to the same mailbox, and put our candle in there as well. And then we just drove off. I was like, oh, so you figured out that that thing was stinking up the car as well. That was That's probably the worst gift we ever got. Well, now it turned into a nice surprise, or not, for or, whoever. Right, exactly. <laughs> My mom, when I was a kid, if uh, I got any toys, it would say, to Chuck from Mom. If it was socks or underwear, it was always from Santa. <laughs> she was like, yeah, I was trying to very slowly get you away from the Santa thing. Santa's very practical. <laughs> he is very practical, and I'm concerned about why he's so interested in my underwear. Uh, you uh, you can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following, or <laughs> not following anymore, but when we will be speaking, we'll be announcing the winner of this week's question from Hell. Stuck saying following the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin in my brain, and uh, I don't know if we're going to be playing a moment of truth tomorrow. If you, if your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Now a word from our sponsors, and as we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you. Lars sent us an email suggesting the answer to every question from hell from here on Bumper stickers will be issued. Thanks for good radio, and I hope I will win someday. I think Lars means that when we read our favorite answer, to add to that answer the phrase, bumper stickers should be issued. If the answer is so good that bumper stickers, as if the answer is so good that bumper stickers should be issued because that answer was so great. Not a bad idea. Lars, we'll try it out this week, and when we pick this week's winner... So as soon as I announce whatever the answer is to the question from hell, I'll pause and say bumper stickers should be issued. We also got an email from someone named Smith KC who writes, Hi Chuck, I'm a frequent listener and I don't think I've heard you interview any, <clears throat> any of the people who have advocated for, for years for shorter work time. Of late, this is not much of an issue that grabs attention, but there are still arguments for it. Two guests I can suggest, one is John DeGraff, that's G-R-A-A-F, 
Check him out at johndegraff.com. Another possibility is Tom Walker. Tom has done extensive research in economic theory of labor time, including much that mysteriously hasn't been translated into English, most written in French. That's not much of a mystery why that hasn't been translated into English. I guess book publishers thought we didn't need to know. Keep up good work. Uh, keep up all the good work. I always find something interesting on your podcast. So we appreciate the email, Smith KC, because this is an issue we have actually discussed in the past, but not enough. Back in 2019, we talked to Jenny O'Dell about her book, How to Do Nothing, an interview that Lindsay actually replayed earlier this year. But off the top of my head, that's the only anti-work conversation we have had. That said, it has come up as a topic during conversations here on the show. In fact, Listeners chose one of those interviews that we did discuss. It as one of the best of 22, 2022, and we played it yesterday. Listeners loved our talk with Dr. Heather Berg on her Boston Review article about sex workers being labor's vanguard. We uh, wrapped up that conversation with a question from hell as we wrap up all our interviews. Our question from hell for Dr. Berg was, what would a life look like that didn't value humans through what they do for work? What would a life that did not center around work look like? So granted, it was not a particularly good question or very hellish. However, Dr. Berg's answer was essentially communism, small c communism. But she did suggest a book for those who are interested in the topic. And that book is from 2011 by Kathy Weeks. And it's titled The Problem with Work, Feminism, Marxism, Anti-Work Politics, and Post-Work Imaginaries. Thanks for the reminder uh, that we need to get back to the topic. And over the holidays, we'll look into John DeGraff and Tom Walker and look for other possible guests to discuss shorter work time if not the end of what we call work. After all, there is a reason we call our work a job, as in a crime, particularly a robbery, as in a bank job or a hit job where it's an unfair piece of sensationalized journalism that attacks somebody without any response from the person who's being attacked. You too can email email us, message us via Facebook or DM us by way of Twitter. And if you do, we'll likely read whatever you write to us on air. And we are still requesting your suggestions, your recommendations, your nominations for interviews to play during these best of 2022 episodes. You still have time to send in your suggestions. Listening live is better. Bumper stickers should be issued. This is hell. Hey, that's where Lars got that idea from, maybe. And now chosen by our listeners as one of the best interviews of 2022, our August interview on hacking disabilities with Laura Malden. This is hell. The word hack has many meanings. A hack can be when using a computer to gain unauthorized access to data in a system. A hack can also be a strategy or technique for managing one's time or activities more efficiently. This brings us to so-called life hacks, which are about eliminating life's frustrations in simple and clever ways. But for some, life can be far more frustrating than it is for others. With the world so inaccessible to the disabled, for example, every day can be filled with hacks simply to exist and survive. A daily routine for the disabled can be nothing but hacks, nothing but repeated frustrations that need to be overcome just to get through your day. Of course, 
It doesn't have to be like this, and there was the promise of the Americans with Disabilities Act to help the disabled overcome these frustrations. However, with the ADA, while the ADA may apply to public spaces, it doesn't apply to private residences where the disabled, like most people, spend the majority or at least a plurality of their day. Homes are not built to be dis disabled compliant, which again can make life very frustrating. As a disabled person myself, I'm legally blind uh, due to optic nerve atrophy, which causes 2200 vision, intense light sensitivity, complete color blindness, and problems with depth perception. I regularly engage in hacks to survive. The process to cross a major street uh, with walk and don't walk signs can be absolutely frightening. But over the years, I've figured out ways to cross without getting myself killed up until now. It's not just crossing the street or domestic life that can cause challenges for the disabled. It's the entire U.S. healthcare system and the medical supply chain that the disabled have to hack to make life possible. But why does it have to be this way? Why does life have to be so frustrating and inaccessible for the disabled? We'll find out in a few minutes when we speak with writer, sociologist, and interdisciplinary scholar Laura Malden, author of the Baffler Magazine article, Care Tactics, Hacking an Ableist World. This article is part of a project funded by the Social Science Research Council. Virtual interviews and home visits were conducted with 44 caregivers and their partners, when possible, across 22 states to ask them about their caregiving experiences. Participants also provided photos of their homes and hacks. In compliance with research ethics, all names are pseudonyms in this article and all of the writing and research done. For an archive of detailed examples of disability hacks sourced from the spousal caregivers and disabled folks who participated in this research, you can visit disabilityathome.org. Laura is an associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies and human development and family sciences at the University of Connecticut. She is currently writing a book that tells the stories of disabled people and caregivers as they try to survive in an ableist America. Laura works across the humanities in fields such as deaf and disability studies, as well as the social sciences. Laura's scholarly work focuses on how science, technology, and medicine shape contemporary life and is based on the contention that disability is a political and social category that intersects with all other social categories. She often investigates how ableism structures our lives by examining the experiences and expertise of family caregivers, disabled people in their communities. Laura is also a nationally certified American Sign Language Interpreter. Find out more about Laura at lauramalden.com. That's M-A-U-L-D-I-N.com. And find out more about Laura, uh, follow her, sorry, on Twitter at Malden underscore Laura. This is not the media. This is hell. And if this was the more establishment media, we likely would not be focusing on today's topic as we would be too distracted by all of the shiny new gizmos that promise to make a far more accessible world for the disabled. The reality of living as disabled is that techno solutions are not the answer the media and so many ableists, those who only see the world through the privilege of ableism, make them out to be. Here to help us have a better understanding of the hacked life of the disabled, why a hacked life is necessary, and what it says about the shortcomings of accessibility for the disabled, writer, sociologist, and interdisciplinary scholar Dr. Laura Malden is author of the Baffler Magazine article, Care Tactics, 
hacking and ableist world. Welcome to This Is Hell, Laura. Good morning. In your bio, it says Laura's scholarly work focuses on how science, technology, and medicine shape contemporary life and is based on the contention that disability is a political and social category that intersects with all other social categories. How do we understand disability differently? How do we see the disabled differently when we understand them as a social category? Oh, thanks for asking that question. That's a really good one. Um, I think a lot of people, when they think about disability, they think about their own particular body and perhaps a specific impairment. And it's hard to think about that as something social when we kind of connect it in our minds to something that just happens to an individual's body, right? Um, But what we have to understand is that we all live in these bodies. And it was so nice to hear your opening chat this morning um, talking about your own weekend, you know, with your own unreliable body in which we all have. But when we think about disability as a category, I'm talking about um, not focusing too much on the specificity of an impairment in that moment. While that exists and is something important to talk about, there's something that happens in the aggregate uh, when we think about the fact that according to the CDC, a quarter of US adults over the age of 18 have a disability and more than half live with a chronic condition. Um, And when I talk about disability as a category, I'm talking about not just those things that we might immediately associate with disability, like the universal symbol of the wheelchair, for example. It's not just that. It could be a chronic illness where your functionality is impacted in some way every day. Um, So it could be um, something like you know, dementia could be a disability, right? There's all kinds of different ways that it manifests. And when I think about it in the aggregate, I think about the way that our systems are not designed for any of those people. So regardless of the varieties of impairments, all disabled people have to face structural barriers um, that are built into our systems. And they affect people with different impairments in different ways, but nevertheless, in the aggregate, it's there. So I think about disability as this broad social category that's made up of a variety of heterogeneous impairments. And those are important to talk about, but in the aggregate, that's what I'm talking about, disability as a category. When it comes to disability as a political category, how difficult is it for the disabled to recognize that they have an affinity with other people who are disabled. As you were saying, a quarter of people uh, can be labeled as uh, disabled, but those disabilities are very different from one another. Some are very visible when you're looking at some people and some are not very visible. So how difficult is it for the disabled to find affinity to become a political category? Oh, that's also, that's such a great question because I think um, I think it can be very, very difficult. Um, I think that the first thing that we're all starting from is that disability is highly stigmatized. So we're all beginning from that point. Now, I also talked about uh, how disability 
is a category that intersects with all these other categories, right? So if you think about men um, identifying as disabled versus women identifying as disabled, because of our um, beliefs about what it means to be masculine and what masculinity means and what it means to quote, be a man, disability can often be in the idea, a stigmatized idea of disability can be totally in conflict with that sort of idealized notion of what being, quote, being a man is, right? So that might mean that for men, it might be hard to come to uh, an identity around disability. And I think for women, it's hard too, but for different reasons. And then we think about folks of color, you know, who in particular, um, you know, ableism or the devaluation of disabled bodies is so intricately connected with anti-Black racism in the US um, because there's a whole history there. I really recommend um, the work of disability justice um, folks um, out of, uh, there's Talila Lewis, she does great, or they do great work um, on uh, identifying the ways in which ableism and racism are so intertwined because we devalue certain types of bodies and ableism is wrapped up in anti-Black racism. So Talila, their work is really um, important in charting the history of that and where that emerges from, particularly in eugenic thought. Um, so if we think about um, folks in the Black community, they might have a very different process of relating to this idea of an identity as disabled. Um, and so I think that's a really important question. And I think the most important thing is to say, not everyone who's disabled has to identify. You don't have to, you know, there's no kind of prescription here in terms of, well, you must identify as disabled. I think that we get into trouble when we start to tell people how to identify. But I do think it's important to talk about the possibilities of that and the obstacles to that and the patterns that might appear in that. Do you think then that the disabled community has some shared experience or has some understanding of what it is like to be discriminated against that is similar to the African-American experience? Is there any kind of commonality between the uh, type of discrimination that disabled face and that people of color face? You know, this idea of an analogy between groups um, is something that a lot of people have talked about. And I guess I would just say that systems of devaluation and systems of marginalization are connected. But I think that when we start to talk about, oh, is X like Y? We fail to see that often people are both X and Y. So in, in terms of, we know that the prevalence of disability is higher in communities of color than in white communities. And so I think it's important to think about the ways in which they intersect rather than to think about the ways that they, one is like the other. But I think that for a lot of people, that's kind of a first step in how they start to think about disability as a social category where they go, okay, wait, if this is a social category, so let me think about the other social categories that I understand and think through it as, oh, maybe it's like that. And I wanna say, yeah, those systems of oppression are linked, but I also make sure to leave room for 
people to occupy multiple marginalized um, positions. I hope if that you know makes sense. Yeah, that definitely does. You you write you beginning your article at the Baffler saying here is what doesn't go viral. You then explain Angel, who worked as a house painter for decades but had a stroke three years ago that paralyzed the left side of his body. Now his favorite spot is a recliner in his living room. From his perch, he can reach some essential items that he stores on a table to his right, a power screwdriver, painter's tape, and a clipboard with paper and pen. You then describe how Angel installs a striker plate, something every door has that everybody sees every day. They just don't think about it. The piece of metal on the door jam that connects the lock from the door to the door frame. As Angel is is paralyzed, it's an inconvenient process that is far more time-consuming and complicated than it would be for somebody who is not disabled, as you call it, a a MacGyver-like complication and solution that he comes up with. But as you point out, quote, here's what does go viral, braille decoder rings, sign language translating uh, gloves, haptic footwear for blind folks, stair-climbing wheelchairs, in other words, a preponderance of innovations unveiled to great fanfare that purport to solve disability-related problems, while the press applauds the tech sector's forward thinking and sensitivity to the needs of underserved population, the concerns of disabled people, voiced again and again and again, are disregarded. That would suggest, then, that this technology isn't really to satisfy the needs of the disabled, that the marketing and the message is for somebody else. So who is this technology and its sales pitch for, if not for fulfilling the needs of accessibility for the disabled? Um, I think that people are, you know, perhaps um, thinking that what they're doing might be helpful to disabled folks. But the thing is, is that they don't really involve disabled folks in the process. They may not know disabled folks or they're willing to move forward in their ideas and development of things without stopping to think that, oh, disabled people have lived on this earth for a long time and have figured out ways to move around. Maybe we need to talk to them about what their strategies are, what's important to them. But instead, it typically comes from this paternalistic position of like, going to make this thing for these people, assuming that those people don't have any agency or don't have any competencies of their own. And in fact, they do. And these, I'm going to take the example of the sign language gloves, for example. That one is just, I mean, every deaf person I know as a working interpreter, we are just, we're just laughing and horrified at the same time that people would think this was a good idea because deaf people are like, why on earth would I want to wear, first of all, wear gloves? Second of all, you know, sign language, so much of its meaning is actually in facial expressions, not on the hands, which we call non-manual behaviors that are part of the linguistic message. But it's just, it's a complete lack of understanding of how American Sign Language or other sign languages work. So it's so uninformed that I can't help but, you know, I haven't gone and like interviewed these people who are putting forth these ideas, but my assumption, you know, the only thing I can take away from this is that they think they're doing this good deed or they think they're doing something that's going to help this 
group of people who are somehow helpless, which I think is the first problem that people assume disabled people aren't competent and don't have agency in their lives. And um, second of all, I think they're trying to, you know, appeal to the public when you garner public interest. And when you appeal to public sympathies, where you've, again, you're utilizing this group as a collective, oh, disabled people, as a collective, as this pitiable group, then you're leveraging that pity, which is ableism. You're leveraging that in order to do your feel-good marketing to get public interest and then more investment in what you're doing. And that's what I think people are trying. You know, maybe they're inadvertently doing it because they just don't know that they're being ableist. Um, but that's my um, my read on this situation. And I don't know if they realize that they are reflecting pity. What do disabled people want rather than pity? Yeah, I would say first thing, uh, disabled people want a more accessible world. And I mean that by I'm talking about, you know, the physical environment, right, from you know, one of the other things that gets brought up a lot are stair climbing wheelchairs, which are just ridiculous and dangerous and don't solve anything. And disabled people are like, build a ramp. What, like, why are we building some contraption that I could never get into and could say not safely navigate um, and not potentially fall out of? It would be a disaster um, when you could just put in a ramp. Why not change the physical environment to make it accessible so that the stair climbing wheelchair is, you know, obsolete, you know, this is not, I mean, it's not needed anyway, but it's the idea that it's needed, make that obsolete. Um, so I think first and foremost, people would like a more accessible world. And I, you know, again, physical infrastructure, but also I'm thinking about access to basic care. I mean, people are out here trying to uh, devise all these wacky contraptions when most disabled people don't have access to basic health care um, and they are, um, you know, subject to routine um, diseases and illnesses just like the rest of us but can't get care. You know, I think about the very tiny, small percentage of, uh, I'll take one example of, um, you know, clinical exam rooms. They aren't accessible to wheelchairs typically. So I'm, I'm thinking about access to care, both because we don't have universal health care in this country, access to care in a physical kind of way. Um, and then I think about people want a more accessible world. And I mean this through attitudes, people's attitudes around, oh, well, you're not moving fast enough, or you're not productive, so you're not worthwhile, or you must have such a terrible life. I so pity you because you're disabled. Like those kinds of attitudes make the world inaccessible as well. So I think first and foremost, people want a more accessible world. And I think on all of those levels. You mentioned in your writing how the Americans with Disabilities Act, it does impact uh, you know public spaces, but not private spaces. Yet you were just explaining how in medical exam rooms, they're often not handicapped or accessible. When I was just uh, going through all of my surgical and medical problems, at one point I had to be in a wheelchair. I couldn't walk at that point. And the, the mm -hmm. doors for the physical, for the medical exam rooms 
were wide enough for the wheelchair to go through. But if I was propelling the wheelchair myself, putting my hands on the rails where the wheels are, there is no way I could have gotten through that door because just that uh, few quarter, half of an inch maybe of space on each side, my knuckles were hitting the door jam. So I had to have somebody push me through. What does it Mm -hmm. say to you about our medical system when even the medical exam rooms that we have are not disability compliant. It does the American with America's Disability Act doesn't it have to apply to hospitals and medical exam rooms as well? Yeah, and you know, it, this happens all the time, you know, as a New Yorker. I mean, these the ADA was passed in 1990. I mean, that is a long time, decades ago, and it is still next to impossible to find an accessible restaurant even though technically by law Restaurants should be accessible, but there's all these, um, you know, if you want to claim it's unreasonable, uh, it's an unreasonable burden to um, like retrofit your space or create accessible entrances and things like that, then you can get um, sort of a waiver. You don't have to comply if you can demonstrate, you know, that it would be like an undue burden. So um, there are ways in which the entities get around the ADA but it is stunning to me that, you know, and I think it says something about the utter built-in embeddedness of ableism in everything in our world that has always ever been, that it just is so there that we don't even conceive of buildings um, that are accessible and we can't figure out how to make them accessible. And I think one of the, you know, obviously it costs money to do these kinds of things, to make these, to make um, renovations, to retrofit, you know, those things cost money. And that's the rub is that when you live in a capitalist society that certain things cost money, then um, it's really hard to make it happen um, because of that. And it tells you something about what we value versus what we don't. And I just, it's, I think, in medical care in particular, I think the assumption is that medical medicine normalizes. In other words, it takes bodies that are impaired or broken in some way, and it fixes them, that that's their um, goal. But they make no sort of space, as you just recounted, um, for impaired bodies to move through anything other than an ableist designed world. And, and that just... I think speaks volumes about not just the physical, um, not just the physical infrastructure, but also the sort of mentality of medicine itself. Is it simply far too easy to get these waivers to not have to comply with the ADA, or is the problem uh, enforcement in of some way of the ADA? Why is this? Why do we have these shortcomings when it comes to? complying with the ADA. This is something that has never really made sense to me. I have low vision. One of the things that they're supposed to provide Mm -hmm. is in any fast food, this is a silly thing, but uh, any fast food restaurant you go into, they're supposed to have a to-go menu so you can hold one in your hands and get it a little bit closer to your face so you can actually read it if you have low vision. No major chain that I know of has that kind of uh, menu for the people who have low vision. So uh, So is this simply something that is just Uh, unenforced, or do they easily just get this waiver to avoid uh, compliance with the ADA? Well, I think it's probably a bit of both. And, you know, I really love that example that you just gave about fast food restaurants, because um, 
someone that I know who's blind was like, these new menus where, at, at least in New York, I don't know if this is happening elsewhere, but when you go to a restaurant now, they have a um, QR code that you're supposed to open with your phone so that instead of giving you a paper menu, you have this QR code and it you know, opens the menu right there on your phone. And she's like, oh, this is a lifesaver because now I can have my phone read it out to me. Um, and this makes menus accessible for me now and I hope we never go back kind of thing. Um, but I think you're exactly right in that, I mean, the enforcement is just not there. I know so many deaf people who have tried to get healthcare even even though it's mandated, you get you by the ADA that you get an interpreter. Um, the, the healthcare providers will say, "Oh no, we don't do that," or you have to bring your own, or you have to you know pay for your own, or you figure it out. Um, and it's like people say all the time, "Well, the ADA exists. Just don't you just call the ADA?" And <laughs> there's no one to call. <laughs> there's no like. There's no enforcement of this. There's no one to really call and. You can file, you know, complaints and things, but, it, you know, the existence of a law, the point is, is that the existence of a law doesn't do anything. And that is a major problem. So what do you think it says about the public's, uh, the way in which they feel about disability when they passed a law that everybody believes is a, an actual law, functioning law, and then there is no enforcement mechanism whatsoever? What does that say about the way in which we view disabilities, whether it's the politicians who wrote up the law or the public that votes uh, in support for people who do back things like the ADA? I think it says a couple of things. And the first thing I think it says is we don't care. I think that that is the bottom line. I think people don't care. And why they don't care is gets a little more complicated. Um, and I think you know, these are just some of my ideas about why people don't care. And I think one of them is that people are, um, they think that disability happens to someone else. They think that it's not part of their own life. So therefore it's not important. And so that's somebody else's problem. And they should, as an individual, figure out how to make their way in the world regardless. Good luck. And I think there's other layers to this too, where people think not only, oh, does this not apply to me, but also I don't want to think about it because I don't want to think about the fallibility of my own body or the fallibility of the people I care for or care about and their bodies. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to consider this. Um, so therefore I'm just not going to care about that. And I think, you know, I, I am a sociologist and not a psychologist, but I do think that there, on some level, people have a deep existential discomfort with disability and it prevents people from talking about it and engaging with it. And that's part of the reason for my work too, is I feel like if we can just talk about it and we don't need to you know, romanticize this, we don't need to get uh, super emotional about it. We can just talk about what are the facts and what do we need to know and how do we just simply make sure that everybody, regardless of an impairment, can move through a space or be in the world. Um, it's just a very basic thing that I think we should be able to talk about. But um, I also think people don't care because they think it's a small portion of the population and we don't need those people, quote unquote. You know, that we can do, you know, sell our products or have our events and we don't need, quote unquote, those people. 
um, when I'm out, I'm here to say that disability is everywhere. And, um, and if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will happen to you. If it hasn't happened to somebody who you care about, it will. So um, I think there's a real problem of just a real lack of care. And I think people actively devalue disabled people and think they're somehow lesser. And, and I think all of those things that I just talked about are all part of the puzzle. Do you think there's an increasing lack of care for the disabled? You know, it's interesting because um, one of my favorite disabled sort of writers and activists is Amani Barbarin. And um, one of the things people had asked her over on Twitter was, oh, well, now that, you know, we've had the pandemic and there's so many more disabled people because there's now, you know, millions more disabled people, millions are out of work uh, because they can't work because they're disabled by long COVID. Um, and the Social Security Administration does have a new, um, you know, order out that, you know, long COVID can qualify as a disability, things like this. So over on Twitter, people said, oh, Imani, now that there's all these um, additional disabled people, aren't we going to start caring about it more? And I think, you know, the wisdom of Imani's work is that she pointed out how um, with every sort of surge in disability rights or thinking about disability, there's always a pushback and there's always actually new hostility that comes in the face of that. Um, and part of this I'd like to add is precisely because in late capitalism, resources become more and more concentrated for the wealthy and there's less to spare and spread out um, across the rest of us um, as things get more as things get more scarce, then that hostility rises because we're all fighting for um, fewer resources. And so that hostility then comes out in notions of, well, you aren't productive, uh, quote unquote, anymore. You can't work, so you shouldn't get resources, those kinds of things. So I think that in fact, with more disability conversations and more disabled people and fewer resources and fewer social safety nets, it's actually going to become more hostile rather than less. One of the hostilities I've faced in the past is this phrase of being one of the fake disabled. I was trying to get on a commuter train, for instance, at one time, and I was running late. So I ran down the platform and just got on in time. And when I showed the conductor my disability card uh, to make it so I have a discounted uh, fare to get on the train, he said, oh, you're one of the fake disabled. And I've heard this phrase a lot in the past of people who are supposedly faking their disability in order to get some sort of access to government services, government services, by the way, that are lacking for the disabled. So how do we overcome that idea of uh, the disabled not necessarily being disabled, that somehow it is a huge scam, it is a big fraud that is being perpetrated on the taxpayers of the United States? Yeah, this is such an important conversation. And um, you are, you're right. Your experience is so spot on with so many people that I know that is also their experience. And, um, you know, one of the things is that if you look at the fraud rate, um, that the social security security administration puts out, I think they put it somewhere at less than 1%, uh, when they go back and sort of audit everything and, and look at, um, social security income claims that um, the fraud rate is extraordinarily low. So I think the first thing we have to do is dispel the myth, right? That this actually doesn't exist. Um, and if it does, it's extraordinarily rare. Second of all, I think people think that 
the government is there for you when you become disabled and they're there to help you. And I also want to dispel that myth <laughs> because it is extraordinarily hard. The systems are so hostile. They're so difficult to navigate. You have to prove yourself over and over again. You have to be reevaluated every year. It is an enormous amount of paperwork. Um, and it can be absolutely mortifying to have people um, digging deep into your, you know, the very uh, personal nuances of your impairments um, and questioning those and everything feels um, everything feels hostile. And I, so I think the myth is that there's fraud. The myth is that there's a government and there's social safety nets that are there to help you and they're easy to get. Um, I mean, if that was a scam that people were running, that is one of the hardest, you know, <laughs> and you barely get anything from social security income or Medicaid. I mean, these, these, the systems themselves don't even give you that much. So there's not a whole lot to defraud for. So, um, I think we have to dissolve the myth that people fake it uh, on the regular. I think we have to dissolve the myth that there's actually uh, strong social safety nets there. And I also think we have to dissolve the myth that it's anybody's business what disability you have if you can't see it. You know, if it's, we, you talked earlier about, you know, some are visible, some are not. And if something is invisible to you or doesn't make sense to you, um, and yet, you know, someone such as yourself presents a card, you know, my advice is to mind your own business and <laughs> accept uh, what that person is telling you. Um, so we've got a lot of work to do. And that's part of that attitudinal um, barrier. I think, too, that people assume that it's normal to be able-bodied, that that's the typical thing. And I would say that's just not true. Um, as I said earlier, some of the stats around a quarter of people are disabled, a uh, quarter of adults, excuse me, um, half of adults live with uh, chronic conditions, 40% um, live with two or more chronic conditions, and we all age into disability, every single one of us. So I feel like people think that having a, a human body means, you know, there's this idea of what a normal human body is and that that's what's typical. When it, what's typical is disability. That's, that's what's typical. That's a normal part of life uh, and a normal part of the life course. And for some reason, people think that it's not. And so the idea that there could be this many disabled people, I think offends that assumption. And that is really hard to work against when we can't talk about disability in our culture in a way that isn't stigmatizing. So if we can just start having the conversations and start thinking about, oh, well, this is just a normal part of life. Let's talk about our practical ideas for, for dealing with that. Um, until then, people are gonna have these assumptions. And um, so the attitudinal stuff is, is just as important as dispelling myths. And it makes sense that those assumptions are driven by fear. We are speaking with writer, sociologist, and interdisciplinary scholar, Dr. Laura Malden, author of the Baffler Magazine article, Care Tactics, Hacking an Ableist World. You were mentioning how QR codes can help people in fast food restaurants, for instance. And you write on YouTube, the channel Zabreda Makes It Work is dedicated to specific disability life hacks for tackling functional tasks, while Natalie Fierce's channel shares a glimpse of how different hacks and tips help her create a more accessible world at home. 
and you mention how it, it tells her that the news in the morning plays the radio. Uh, talking about Alexa dot speaker, it tells her the news in the morning plays the radio and audio books and reminds her to take medication, and it does all this with voice activation, and thus we land on Amazon. You add, over the last few years, I've spoken with dozens of spousal caregivers and some of their ill or disabled partners across the country about the hacks they use to navigate the world, and almost every person I spoke to talked about the key role Amazon plays in their lives. Though generally a malevolent force, uh, Amazon is also a tool many disabled people have come to rely on to fill basic needs that are that our shambolic uh, healthcare system often declines to recognize, let alone meaningfully address. So is it that Amazon purposely set about serving the disabled community and they should be commended for it? Or is it our healthcare system is so underserving of the disabled that any online retail platform is better at providing the tools needed by the disabled for accessibility? Is this how great Amazon is? Is this indicative of that? Or is it indicative of how awful U.S. healthcare is? I think it's indicative of how awful U.S. healthcare is. And I think the fact that Amazon has all of the supplies that they do and all of the equipment that they have on there, I don't know that there was any good intent on that in terms of we're going to try to do this for people. I think it was probably one of the best ways to make money. I mean, if you look at our GDP, a huge portion of it is um, medical related, uh, medicine, healthcare overall. And so the healthcare market is actually uh, always growing. And this is a great way to make money if you're a company such as Amazon. So I would, you know, stake my uh, bet on the intentions of Amazon, which is to make more money. But I also think that because our healthcare system is so bad and so particularly bad at meeting very basic functional needs of disabled folks that, um, the equipment and supplies that Amazon offers and offers at a lower price than other uh, retailers um, is absolutely a symptom of a larger problem with our healthcare system. Is accessibility, though, is it just a matter of, you know, poverty or having the resources in order to make certain that your life is accessible? Because you write people were often driven to Amazon because once they were discharged from rehab environments, they encountered obstacle after obstacle in their inaccessible homes. Bathrooms are particularly difficult to make accessible on a budget, and few Medicaid plans cover essential medical supplies like gloves, wipes, and bed pads, which is disturbing, if one even qualifies for Medicaid <coughs> to begin with. So they search Amazon for hours to find a shower chair. They can jury rig as a commode if they if they pair it with a five-gallon paint bucket or a shower chair that is mounted on a long bench with rails and then can be easily slid over and into a tall bathtub. These are things caregivers often find on their own and then share with their support groups, posting online to alert others that they've discovered something new. And this is how they share hacks. Is this something only being experienced by disabled people who are in poverty? Are these hacks something only a small subset of disabled must deal with, or is this something that can be in any of our future, no matter our level of wealth? It is something that is in any of our futures, no matter your wealth. And I can say this with certainty, because if I look at the demographics of the people who participated in my research, um, you know, annual household incomes ranged from 
you know, something like $15,000 a year to $860,000 a year. And it did not matter uh, what their um, particular, you know, economic class was. It was more about, oh, I now have this situation and I have to figure out how to navigate my, my home. And even people who had money, uh, I will say this, some people had enough money to be able to renovate their homes so that they could build a roll-in shower, for example, such that they could just roll the, a wheelchair right into the shower space and not have to worry about getting over the lip of a tub or something like this. Um, that Those people ab absolutely exist. It's just that their accessibility um, looks a little bit different because they're able to to actually renovate and build uh, an accessible space. Um, I had an, one couple who had um, widened their hallways. So they'd actually taken their hallways and made them wider to accommodate a power chair. Um, and others had installed grab bars uh, all throughout the house. Others you know, were able to install a ramp on the front of their house, the, these kinds of things. It doesn't matter what your class status is. Um, because the world is built in an inaccessible manner, the way that you will figure out how to move through it, that's where I think the differences are because everybody is different and interacts with their you know, intimate domestic space in their own way. So everybody's going to have to figure out a way to do it differently. But I think the extent to which people can rebuild their environments versus um, retrofitting them versus sort of hacking them with really, like you were talking about the shower chair with the bucket kind of thing, the, like the actual hacks might look different, but everybody's got to do it. You write that Amazon has stepped into the breach to fill a role all but relinquished by the healthcare system is indicative of a broader failure of social provisioning in the United States. So considering what impact private provisioning of public services has had, what do you think the future of social services looks like? Will there be fewer services and even more slowly delivered services while we are left to hacking all of our own lives, whether we're disabled or not? Yeah, I think we're at a juncture here, actually. I'm thinking particularly about the durable medical equipment market. And durable medical equipment um, is something that is part of um, how the government sort of mandates the cost of equipment and what people have to pay for, what they don't have to pay for, or how much of it they have to pay for. One thing that has started happening is that um, we contract out services um, for durable medical equipment with corporations. And what's ended up happening, there was a recent article in The Nation about this, um, is that private equity firms are getting involved now in durable medical equipment markets. And for wheelchair users, this means that they're buying up all these mom and pop kind of wheelchair repair places. Um, and instead, now these private equity firms are... Um, consolidating and it means much longer waits. So when you get a when you are prescribed a wheelchair, so first of all, not everybody can just go out and get a wheelchair. You have to have a prescription for it. Um, and then uh, your insurance, depending on your insurance, will pay for a certain amount of that, all of it, none of it, it just depends. Um, but if you have a prescription for say a power chair, 
um, that power chair, every single power chair is custom made, custom built for that one person's body and their particular needs. And it can take months then when you have these private equity firms sort of getting in and consolidating and, and uh, making it so that we have fewer options. It means that people have longer waits to get their evaluation for the wheelchair. And then once you get the evaluation, then you have to go for a fitting and a measurement. And so you go for that and you have to wait possibly months for that. And then you have to wait once they measure you and fit you and everything. Then you have to wait additional months to get the final wheelchair. And then you have to make sure that it actually fits and does all the things that it, you need it to do. And as you might imagine, if you need a power chair, you're in a little bit of an emergency in terms of moving around and being mobile. But if you're waiting months upon months upon months just to get this piece of equipment, um, I mean, that is it's horrible. And that's why people jump on Amazon and buy manual chairs for, you know, maybe a hundred bucks and have it delivered the next day as a stopgap. That doesn't mean it's necessarily safe, but it's something and it's not, you know, the best. And again, it's not, may not be safe, but it is something that can just sort of, you know, be a stopgap measure until you can get what you need. And I think we have some choices coming um, in terms of how we want to fund infrastructure and social safety nets and, and things like, you know, if we want to develop a universal healthcare system and we want to think about getting private equity out of things like this, um, or if we want to go full privatization, you know, these are the themes that you talk about all the time um, that we have choices to make around whether or not we want to fund and support these social safety nets and, and programs, or if we want to privatize everything and have um, have private corporations sort of dictating this kind of stuff, which has very real impacts on all of us. And again, because we don't like to talk about disability, we don't like to think about disability, we think that's not our problem, that it's just those people, or it's somehow this rare thing, uh, when it absolutely is relevant to every single one of us. And as you're saying, uh, the, this uh, kind of this issue of private equity getting in the durable, dur uh, durable medical equipment uh, arena. My brother, who my late brother, who had MS, he was trying to get a wheelchair, a new wheelchair for himself for several years before he died. The new wheelchair never came through. The process that he was going through to try to get that new wheelchair that was specifically for his needs through Medicaid was just laborious and it was completely ineffective. Can the private market provide accessibility for the disabled or is this something that only the public sector can do? And if so, why? Yeah, I think that's such a good question. And I think the thing is, is that anybody, I think either system could potentially do it, but what is the price that we have to pay for either one? And it seems to me that if we let private equity firms or private corporations get involved in this, we deal with the inevitabilities of capital and the inevitabilities of consolidating that capital for the corporations over the um, quickness um, and uh, appropriateness of providing the actual uh, equipment, such as the wheelchair that you were just talking about with your brother. Of course, those with money can buy it and get it made faster, probably. I mean, I'm, uh, there's, there's ways that people who can afford it can make these kinds of things happen. Um, 
but that there's a price to pay for everybody else, right? And then if we put it solely in the public sector, then we have this age-old problem of the idea that government can't work and the idea that it's just, I mean, I believe you just said your brother's wheelchair was going to be through Medicaid. So, you know, of course, Medicaid is a state run and it's run differently in all 50 states, which is a whole nother conversation <laughs> that it's run so differently across state lines um, and that it can be notoriously slow. The, the, um, you know, hostile systems, the administrative burden, all these sorts of things that are endemic, we think, to public sector. But, you know, I, I think we have to think about the things that we invest in are the things that um, have a chance of getting better. And I think that if we can figure out how to invest in these social safety nets and in these programs and make them run efficiently, that's the idea. For me, that's the ideal um, but we can't do that if we just put everything onto the public sector and then refuse to actually fund the public sector. And of course, that's a big conversation that's happening right now with uh, the Build Back Better uh, infrastructure deal, where they cut out a lot of the home and community-based services um, funding and all of these issues are issues we're actively debating. Uh, and I think we, we definitely have choices to be made and they need to be made very quickly. Um, and we'll see how this turns out. You write of flashy new technology prototype, prototypes that never get built for these it's kind of disability technology that never really happens. Quote, they get attention because they reflect broader ableist assumptions that disability is some kind of singular tragic event requiring a paternalistic and ultimately irrelevant solution, a techno solution. So uh, you also add that our cultural obsession with techno-solutionist thinking that suppresses our ability to imagine alternatives to this individualist vision. How does seeking okay. a techno-solution reflect individualism and an individualist vision? Does the hyper-individualism of neoliberalism lead to a popular obsession with techno-solutions, especially for the disabled? Yeah, I mean, I think that... First of all, people think about, again, we can go back to the very beginning of our conversation where we think, oh, those people, those poor people that need help, let's give them a, uh, I believe in the article, I talk about it as like a, a technological band-aid, you know, just put, let's give them something to fix their abnormal interaction with our normal world. And that's where that individual is thinking, as though it's this one-off thing, it's this one person, um, and it's they're the site of the problem, that their body is the site of the problem, rather than thinking, oh, this is something that's actually typical, it's a normal part of the human life force, and it reflects actually on the ways that we have built our systems, that it reflects our systems being built with particular bodies in mind, uh, typical, uh, typical assumptions about what kinds of people are in the world, are out in public, are um, part of our society. And so when we think about um, the individual body that doesn't fit this idealized notion of a normal person, then you are locating the site of the problem on the individual. And that's that individual thinking that we need to create a, a technology specifically to mend that, um, that interaction between that one person 
and the larger environment, rather than thinking, oh, the site of the problem is actually the social system, uh, our, the way that we built our environment, um, our thinking about who disabled people are, what they want, these kinds of things. Um, if we actually think on that sort of collective systems level, then suddenly that individual you know, technology for that person is not the answer. The answer is instead in rethinking how we design our world, rethinking the systems that we build, and rethinking our assumptions about um, what kinds of people are part of our public. One last question for you, Laura. We have been speaking with writer, sociologist, and interdisciplinary scholar, Dr. Laura Malden, author of the Baffler Magazine article, Care Tactics, Hacking an Ableist World. Laura is currently writing a book that tells the stories of disabled people and caregivers as they try to survive in an ableist America. You can find out more about Laura at lauramalden.com. That's M-A-U-L-D-I-N. And follow Laura on Twitter at Malden underscore Laura. And we hope to have you back on the show when you do have your new book uh, published because it would be wonderful to have you back on for another conversation. Uh, But one last question for you, Laura, and I promise that we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You quote Magnolia in Maryland, saying of her disability hack support group, quote, many of the small solutions that I use for whatever little thing is going wrong, I've gotten from other members of the group. They're always willing to share suggestions about big things and small. But these support groups may never have happened unless the U.S. healthcare system had not done such a horrible job at serving the disabled. So are the failings of U.S. healthcare transforming into any political, organizing, or activist success for the disabled community when it comes to improving accessibility? Well, you know, I think there are, it, there's an interesting sort of two spheres as I see it. And one sphere is um, what I would call uh, disability communities, and I say plural because there is no one disability community. There are so many, and um, there's differences within those communities in politics, in particularities of impairment. Um, there are all kinds of groups that have emerged, um, particularly thinking um, of the group Sins Invalid, which is on um the West Coast, uh, who's the preeminent sort of disability justice movement, but there's all kinds of disability justice organizations that have been around for a very long time and have been doing collective care work for each other. There's all kinds of impairment specific um, groups. Um, you know, there are folks who are largely bedbound, for example, uh, who have groups on Facebook and, you know, talk all the time and support each other. And there's, so there's these, this whole sort of emergence, uh, well, they've been around for a long time, but I think emergence of our, in our sort of larger consciousness that they exist uh, of disability communities. And then on the, I would say another sphere would be caregiver communities. And I see this uh, often siloed by disease type. So there's, for example, MS support communities. Uh, there's the, you know, the MS society. There's um, the Alzheimer's groups. There's um, ARP has, you know, support groups for anybody who's caring for 
uh, most of those folks are caring for their aging parents. So you might have adult children caring for their aging parents. So you have it siloed by disease type or siloed by particular type of caregiver. There's the Well Spouse Association, which is the national organization for people who are spousal caregivers who are caring for their partner. Um, there's so there's all kinds of communities and there's these caregiver communities and there's these disability communities. What I find interesting is that um, both of these spheres are trafficking in disability knowledge and disability culture because they're sharing information and sharing experiences. And I think both of these spheres have the potential to come together um, and think through the political implications on sort of policy questions such as, you know, funding, build back better and home and community based services, which help disabled people live in their communities. And when they're living in their communities, they're often relying on unpaid family caregivers. So if we're fully supporting home and community based services, it makes disabled folks living at home a possibility. And it also means that they can have the support they need such that unpaid family caregivers aren't um, doing the bulk of the, the labor. So I think there's some really interesting overlaps and there's a lot going on um, that could be sort of brought together. And uh, I think we could have a real um, sort of powerhouse if, if these kinds of communities were to, to band together. I hate to give you a follow-up question, but so how difficult is disability solidarity considered, considering all the different forms of disability and considering the fact that there are opinions from caregivers and there is also the community of the disabled, how difficult is disability solidarity? it can be extremely difficult. I think people have very different experiences. Uh, again, you know, disability is so heterogeneous. There's so many different kinds of impairments. And, you know, I think people in black and brown communities have different experiences of disability than those who are white. Um, I, you know, there's all kinds of other categories that come into play that mean that it's a very rich tapestry, as it were. Um, and just like any other social movement that's trying to coalesce around a shared investment in something, um, it can be very difficult. And I also think that historically, caregivers have, um, I think, talked about disabled people as, or in the way that they talk about caregiving burden, that's a phrase that often gets used. So the, the burden of care, caregiving burden, or caregiver stress, you know, these kinds of things. Caregivers are stressed and burdened not because of disability and not because disability exists. They're stressed and burdened because our systems are ableist and they don't provide the support that everybody needs. So I think that, you know, one of the biggest uh, obstacles to finding solidarity across these communities is that I think the onus is on a lot of the caregiving side to understand how ableism works and that ableism is impacting their lives and that um, disability is not necessarily uh, the problem, although certainly the realities of day-to-day -day impairment can absolutely be difficult and at times tragic uh, when it involves um, degenerative diseases, terminal illnesses, things like that. You know, those kinds of things are realities. Um, but I think that what we have to do is get a cross-group um, uh, understanding of how ableism is impacting all of us whether you're disabled or not. And to me, that's the key. 
We have been speaking with Dr. Laura Malden, author of the Baffler Magazine article, Care Tactics, Hacking an Ableist World, uh, for an archive of detailed examples of disability hacks sourced from the spousal caregivers and disabled folks who participated in the research for this article, as well as the uh, project of the Social Science Research Council. You can visit disabilityathome.org. Thank you so much for being on our show today, Laura. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Okay, take care and enjoy the rest of your week. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview <clears throat> hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Thank you, Elizabeth. I really appreciate that. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. And I just realized staring into the abyss is kind of ableist as is the tagline we used at the beginning of today's show your eyewitness to grief this is hell so maybe we should reconsider using those taglines in 2023 if what you just heard from laura malden was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that yes this really is hell show your support by becoming a patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support of completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far this week's question from hell is the provoke proverbial worst gift you can get during the holiday season is a lump of coal but who knows where to buy a lump of coal anymore in these modern times what is the worst gift you can possibly receive during the holidays during the holidays holidays uh, <laughs> <laughs> i i'm not sure i think the last person's response that was read was it trump trading nfts yes exactly okay. so warren l says radioactive chunk of concrete from a decommissioned <laughs> nuclear power plant. <laughs> that's I agree, not that's pretty bad. I don't want that in my stocking. It's not made of lead. Uh, Ray O says that we asked for it. You asked for it. A piece of This Is Hell merch. Oh, jeez. Ouch. Ouch. I don't know. I just received one of those beanies. I don't think it was the worst no, thing I've ever received. No, wonderful gift. <laughs> Kim G says fruit cake made of those razor blade apples from Halloween. <laughs> okay. You can't just let them go to waste though. No, you can't. Well, uh, you could use the razor blade. You could use the fruit cake. Why ruin both? <laughs> what Watchik R says Lindsey Graham branded suppositories. Wow. Lindsey Graham branded suppositories. Yikes. If you didn't hear that. Yikes. Wowzers. <laughs> Uh, Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Gorey branded supply. Yeah, they're really close. Yes, they are. They're very close. I, I might steal that idea for my next hustle. <laughs> That's sweet. Oh, how could could you uh, work with Justin Dowell on making some uh, This Is Hell suppositories? You think you could work on that? <laughs> I Perhaps. I'm not even sure what a suppository is. It's what you put up I'm... your butt. <laughs> okay, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, I can yes, do that. Uh... <laughs> No, that's what I thought it was, but you never know. I could, you could be wrong. You can learn new <laughs> definitions every day. Uh, Jack B says peeps Bitcoin. <laughs> Gross. I don't. I, I don't. I haven't learned that one yet. Mm. Um, Will A says, "What's the worst gift you can receive during the holidays?" 
it's a green card who the f wants to come to america <laughs> unless you like watching dumpster fires from the front row <laughs> uh, at least you get a good seat for the dumpster fire Yep, we got some of the most abundant dumpsters in the world, so <laughs> check them before you set them on fire. There might be something valuable. Not the one behind my house. <laughs> I've seen people digging in the dumpster for the hoarder downstairs. They have yet to walk away with one damn thing. Yeah, yeah. We can warn everybody. For, let Put a sign on that. Be like, this isn't... Be like, Just put like a sign that says bed bugs and nobody will waste their oh, time. Oh, good point. <laughs> That'll mm-hmm. work. Yeah, got yes, dumpster divers gotta look out for each other, you know. <laughs> uh, can't save three billions of tons of trash by yourself. <laughs> uh, no matter how hard you try. <laughs> there's one more on Facebook. Shall I read it? Yeah, let's read the last one on Facebook, uh, and then we'll save the rest for tomorrow with Dan. Yes, Nick E says Harry and David dryer lint gift pack. <laughs> Worst gift you can receive during the holidays. That would be bad, especially because we learned that dryer lint has tons of PFAS in it. So uh, I freaked out about that doing uh, laundry last weekend. I was uh, ta- I was emptying out the dryer lint, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, my God, i got to wash my hands right now because I don't want to get all that most particles in my bloodstream. I was really freaked out about the whole idea of PFAS and dryer lint. The person with our favorite answer again, uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, you get your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can see all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. We'll have the rest of your answers to the question from hell later this week. This is normally when I read this week in Rotten History, which which is written and researched by Ronaldo Magaldi. I just add all the dumb, snarky jokes. But Ronaldo is off for the holidays and celebrating in Berlin. Thanks, Ronaldo, for all the work you do on the show and your years of support. And we just learned that award-winning historian and author Rick Perlstein, who has been on our show several times, is a huge fan of Rotten History. So again, thanks for Rotten History, Ronaldo, and thanks to Rick for listening. While we're at it, we also want to thank Sebastian Vupper for The Past Inside the Present, Sebastian's weekly contribution that provides historical context from the past, which helps us all have a better understanding of the present. And thanks to Jeff Dorchin for providing moments of truth every week. Thanks, Ronaldo, Sebastian, and Jeff for another year of This Is Hell. This Is Hell would not be as hellish as it is without you. We will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, as I said, later this week. Lindsay, who is the next guest that we will be playing? What is the next interview we will be playing here on the Best of 2022, as selected by our listeners with a little help from our staff? Tomorrow's interview that we will be replaying is with historian Gerald Horn. Or Gerald Holm. I honestly horn. can't. Horn. It's horn. Horn? Yeah. yeah I know R and N. Screen with is... my vision, R and N sometimes <laughs> looks like M as well. So, Author of The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. It is an amazing interview. Gerald, this is, I believe, his fourth year in a row where listeners selected our interview with him as one of their favorites. Gerald Horn is a huge listener favorite here on This Is Hell. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsay Gorey for producing. The This Is Hell Holiday Office Party returns on the winter solstice tomorrow, Wednesday, December 21st. Beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Is your office not having a holiday office party this year? 
Make the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party your holiday office party. Work online and don't have a place to have a holiday office party? Make our party your party. Not crazy about all of your coworkers, but would love to celebrate the holidays with some of them? Make our party your party. Will you be in Chicago visiting for the holidays? Bring your friends and family to the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. Each and every person who attends will get a special gift from your friends here at This Is Hell. A hardback copy of the satirical and informative book, E is for Erotica. That's the return of the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party for the first time since before the pandemic. This Wednesday, December 21st, as in tomorrow, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, here in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. We hope to see you there. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>